Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. My name's George Miller, and my guest in this programme is Arnold Weinstein, who's Edna and Richard Salomon Distinguished Professor of Comparative Literature at Brown University. Arnold's literary interests are wide-ranging, as befits his job title. His writing is focused especially on modern fiction. He's published extensively on American, French, German and Scandinavian literature. He's also recorded numerous lecture series on literature for the teaching company, an important strand this, enthusing people outside the university about great books too. His new book, The Lives of Literature, is subtitled Reading, Teaching, Knowing. And unusually for a book that looks back over a long career, the middle term in that list, teaching, is every bit as important as the other two. Literature's connection between book and reader, teacher and student, language and imagination, past and present. But seeking those connections leaves plenty of decisions about what to teach, and how, and why. Arnold writes, Perhaps the most fateful decisions in a classroom are rarely conscious as such, for they involve the young, and the not young, determining whether they do or do not find nutrients in what is presented. I actually think this is true for every field, for every classroom, but it is the very rationale for teaching literature, a field all too easily dismissed as frills or half-processed as merely dead letters. Does this bear on me? is the unstated but severe test question that students put to what they read, and the teacher, as well as the text, either passes or fails it. The best books interrogate their readers, jostle their assumptions, challenge their own sense of me, and the teacher's calling must be to convey this live. There are myriad ways of doing so. Unquote. One way of looking at Arnold's book is an exploration of those ways, that seeking of nutrients. What books still speak to us? What do they say? And why are they worth attending to? Especially in a climate when the kind of liberal arts education that Arnold has spent his career cheerleading, drumbeating, pimping for, those are all terms he uses of himself, where that education is increasingly viewed as a dispensable luxury. When Arnold spoke to me from his home in Rhode Island in May, I began by remarking that one of the things I'd enjoyed about his book, and hadn't necessarily expected, was its humour, nearly always at his own expense. I think I took myself far more seriously when I was younger, and in this book, in the writing of it, because I wrote it over the course of several years I was writing this book, And in the latter part of the writing, when I began to really get a kind of double arctic on what I'd written, that's where the humor came in. And it occurred to me, the book needs this. Let's have it. It's part of that sort of fuller picture that I'm trying to deliver. And it's also part of that, what I somewhat heavily called the final harvest. Final harvest makes it sound so serious. And it occurred to me that maybe there are a lot of funny surprises and, uh, you know, that one comes across, what I call guff, you come across as a fool as well. So I discovered that was a productive you know, way of looking at my career and writing it maybe was a kind of therapeutic thing as well. It was really refreshing to me as a reader because 
I guess there's a temptation to look back from the Olympian heights, isn't there? And I think some people do fall into that trap. And, you know, it's like, you know, handing down tablets of stone from, from, from the mountain. But you, you, as you say, you, you admit to gaffes and you're very, you're very frank and you're really quite self-critical, aren't you? My wife would be stunned by what you're saying. <laughs> I, I tried to be that in this book. I tried to really have it be almost a kind of dialogic text with earlier selves being brought into relation to how I now see both my work and, and um, how I felt about things and how, how they evolved. I mean, all of my books have a personal tone to them, but this one in a, in a more studied and in a way that I want to unpack differently. Yeah. You mentioned earlier selves, and I wanted to take you back to Paris in the early 1960s when you were a student there. For real? <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know, I haven't been to Paris for a long time, but, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very alluring, it's very tempting. Tell me about, because it sounds like you had, a, I mean, you, you had other awakenings to literature and to language before and, and since, but that experience in Paris as a young student seemed to be quite a a key one, quite a formative one, and how you, you know, thought about literature and how that directed your later career. It absolutely was. And of course, that's almost the kind of commonplace. There's so many people who, writers in particular, you know, who found their awakening, or in a sense, found their vocation in Paris. As trite or cliched as it sounds, that's exactly what happened to me. And one has to do a little time travel that I was in Paris in 1960. I took a boat we didn't people weren't flying across the ocean as much in those days i only had two years of french but they were very good i had a wonderful uh, several wonderful courses at princeton before i went so that my french was really operational and uh everything about it was was right i arrived there at a wonderful time in my own life i was available for all kinds of experiences and discoveries i'd never been to europe before my Courses, in all candor, were not as good as they were at Princeton, because I don't think teaching had the same status at the Sorbonne that it had at Princeton. On the other hand, what was so exciting for me was how my French became something that I could work through, work with. And in a sense, it was a different way of understanding myself. It was like a new key you know, as I said, it's, I think in the book that it's a cliche that people tell you that you sound different when you speak a foreign language, and it's not just the sounds that you make. So I do think that that's, that working in another language in some strange way unlocks or discovers a side of oneself that hadn't been there as prominently or at all gets awakened through this experience. And that's, in a sense, not a terribly wrong way of looking at the whole year. It was such a sense of awakening. I think I had really been pretty sleepy for a long time. Uh, that, And I say that in the book, that my high school years, with the exception of some very meaningful exposures when I was uh, 16 in the 11th grade, and one or two courses at Princeton, there was something slumbering and something uh, really sort of in the dark for me about what I wanted to be. I went to Princeton thinking that I might take a lot of math courses, I might be a lawyer. That was the way, in a sense, my Memphis background formed me. There were no teachers in my family. So Paris was a, a game changer. It was also wonderfully hedonistic. These things are great fun to sort of go through this process of self-discovery. 
And the kind of humor that you see in this book wasn't present in Paris at all. I didn't laugh at myself at all. I just, I took myself very seriously. I don't think I was pontificating or pompous, but I really, I realized I was on a trip. I was on a ride. I was figuring out who I was. And when I came back to Princeton for my senior year, I was a completely different person. I I knew that I wanted to be a professor, which is something I could never have said at the onset of that year. I knew that French would be a part of it, not just in my learning uh, and teaching, but in the way I lived, and which was true. I got married not long after graduating from college, and we still have a place in, we had a place in the Pays Basque, and now we have a place in Brittany. I, I found that France really became a, a second type of homeland for me. All of that was really the result of this wonderful exposure, you know, in 1960. And the world was different in 1960. Uh, You know, I was there when Kennedy came to Paris as the president-elect. The motorcade went down the Champs-Élysées, not down the Champs-Élysées, it went down the Boulevard Saint-Michel, where I was living in my pension. And we stood outside when he came. And I remember, this is not in the book, but we, my roommates had stolen a huge banner from the uh, Princeton hockey rink that was a Harvard banner. It was huge, big red Harvard banner. And Several friends and I stood on the sidewalk when Kennedy's motorcade went by with this huge Harvard banner. And the gendarmes were convinced with the color of that thing that we were obviously communists who were there, who were going to bait Kennedy. And we tried to explain, no, that's where he went to school as well. He's going to love it. And he did. His head turned around, almost made a U-turn with his neck, looking at us as he, as he drove past. All of that was, you know, sort of the spirit of that year. It was a year of fun and of discovery and I guess of maturation, which is a heavy term I wouldn't have used it then, but that's what was beginning to happen. And you talk in the book about a sense of mission. And I was I was quite amused. You say you, you did an aptitude test and the aptitude test suggested that you might make a good rabbi. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the direction your career has taken I guess has something in common with what a rabbi does in terms of engaging with texts, but not not doing it sort of privately in a in a locked room, but actually trying to open them up and discuss them and bring them into the to the light. So it's it's not an entirely fanciful result to get in an aptitude test. It took me a long time to I could not have seen that in nineteen sixty in Paris at all. I found that the rabbinical model was really a kind of joke about the craziness of these aptitude tests. <laughs> it took some serious, you know, evolution of time to realize, oops, you know, that, that they had it right in some ways. You know, particularly the rabbi is a person who interprets texts for a community. And it occurred to me that's what I've been spending my life doing. Yeah. So how did you see the balance between researching and teaching when you actually came back to the States and then you you began your university teaching career? Because some people are very much drawn to the research side and see the teaching almost as a distraction or an irritation and, and try to limit it as much as possible. From the book, you very much get the impre- give the impression that's, that's not the way you looked on it. That's right. And that, I think, was true early on. At Harvard, getting a doctorate in comparative literature mandated a considerable amount, a kind of painfully large amount of material. This is generic. Every graduate student at Harvard, I think, felt the same way. That we were being professionalized. It's a dreadful verb, but that's what was happening. We were being professionalized. We had five years. Those days, they really got you through quickly to absorb a huge amount of material. I think I said in the book that what gets whispered to you is that you'll never know enough. Because I think that is the research model. 
that you can never know enough and that you can go on forever. And also you lose a sense of, I think, of weights and measures that in some ways, I think research leads you into narrower and narrower uh, places. And that that's in a sense, in a kind of this, I think, unpleasant sense that your reputation depends on, you know, having a small fiefdom that you say, I'm the sort of leading figure here. I early on sensed that was not for me. I did the research that was necessary to write my dissertation. Uh, I learned a whole lot about, in that case, I was looking at the way the French understood Faulkner, which was not as an esoteric question because the Americans' critics at the New Yorker and essentially the New York uh, sort of American literary establishment completely rejected Faulkner. The French discovered him, Sartre, Malraux, the great writers did. So those are things that I learned through the research. But I think as soon as I got to Brown, for my job, I would say that early in my first year as assistant professor, I realized that the life of what I was doing, the life I chose for myself was a teaching life because that's what's living. Obviously the books live too. And that's certainly, it's even in my title, but nonetheless, it's the exchange with, with young people. Uh, and of course I wasn't much older than when I began. That has never uh, gotten you know tedious to me. It never was at any point something that you simply had to do. And I completely agree with you. Many, many people in the academy regard it as a form of a chore, which I think gets things entirely backwards. And further, I was, I've been lucky that my teaching and my writing have really had a kind of symbiotic relationship that they feed each other. That is luck. I don't think I necessarily you know, had a design for that, but it has worked that way. You clearly enjoy lecturing and I'm guessing that you're good at it there are signs in the book I think that that you probably are a performer in in a good sense of the word and bring texts alive and really engage with the students and with the texts but you're quite hard on yourself I said earlier that you're quite critical of yourself and you you refer to things such as my song and dance and your literary bag of tricks or prancing through a lecture is that, is that something you sort of you remain a little bit uncomfortable with, that you're actually quite good at, at being a showman in a good sense in, on behalf of the books? Part of it was th- this belated moment of sort of self-scrutiny in the book. And so it led to phrases like song and dance. Uh, all of my books have been celebrations of literature as a kind of marvelous and untapped resource. And, you know, I, and I use almost Madison Avenue phrases like it's the greatest cultural bargain you'll ever come across. I think at my age now, I look back at that phrase and I still occasionally use it. And I say, that's a song and dance. So I've been selling literature to my students. After all, they come in frequently, but more and more these days as students in the STEM fields, queued to science and economics. Uh, and so one has to give them a song and dance to whet their appetite for literature and to say, to have them begin to realize that literature is a contender and that the arts are, and that this is not, I, I think that teaching literature has lost sight of that, teaching as a, as a kind of vocation. I think few, it's not made pleasurable enough in the classroom. But the heart on myself point is this belated sense of looking at my own performance, which I see as such and saw it for a long time as such, and realizing that it fit really into the economy uh, of this book, that it made sense to talk about that. It's 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 not quite warts and all, but it's a, a way of saying that the fuller picture has to include a form of self-awareness, which is a recognition that 
of one's own patterns. And that I think that, let's say in contrast to many of my, I mean, so many of the courses that that I see across the country in, you know, in literature, in this, you know, in this society uh, are, are fairly, you know, dreadfully serious propositions about what's wrong at every moment, morally, ethically, socially, ideologically, uh, with not just our moment, with every moment that's being studied. And I, I like my courses to be more pleasurable. And I think that, that by being more candid about the performative dimension of things, you actually weave it into the performance. That is to say, it fits just as it fit into the overall packaging of this book that, that I realized not only was it overdue to put a chapter on Goff in, but that belonged in this larger sort of self-accounting of, of a career in teaching literature and in reading. And do you think, Arnold, that has got harder over the course of your career, that speaking up for literature, that making a case for literature, justifying its place in the academy, justifying the fees that students have to pay, justifying it in in the terms that, you know, has become very much the tenor of, of how higher education is looked at? Is that really much harder than when you started out or even than, you know, 20 or 30 years ago? Of course it is. Uh... Harder in as much as that it's a harder sell. It's harder to persuade students that this optic is something really invaluable to them and to discover these materials. I'm lucky. I'm at a first-rate university that is known for its humanistic features and its its curriculum, which is very student-centered, unlike, let's say, Harvard, where I did my doctorate, which is really very much a top-down place, I think, and that undergraduate teaching never had the centrality at Harvard that I think it has at Brown. So I like that. But yes, it's a harder sell. They are going to exit this, their four years of college, probably with stupendous debts, or they come from families where where mom and dad pay it off. And that was not the case in the beginning years of, of, of teaching. And I can remember in the early years of teaching, having conversations with CEOs who told me that, of course, a literature uh, major made perfect sense because Banks and and Wall Street wanted to hire people who had these kinds of critical skills that they could get through studying literature. One doesn't hear that as much anymore. It's it's still heard. Uh, just yesterday, I got an interesting uh, email from a person whom I didn't remember. I taught him 20 years ago. He'd taken my courses at Brown. He went to Wall Street. He was successful. And then he opted to come back to Brown and to join the administration and be involved in part of the money-making part of the university, but that he wanted to tell me that what he had worked with with me 20 years earlier as an undergraduate was absolutely central to the way he thought about his professional work later on. So as much as it's harder, that just makes it all the more necessary, and it doesn't make it an impossible wager that it's possible still, I think, to get this across. And as I say, I'm spoiled in as much as I don't have to persuade people to even try out these courses. One reason I say I'm spoiled is having taught in both France and Sweden, I'm so aware, and and I don't know enough about the UK, I'm so aware that to make the claim that the study of literature uh, in college, not in graduate school, but in college, makes sense for people who want to be doctors and lawyers and financiers, that's still a cogent and uncrazy assertion 
in America. When I taught, particularly in Stockholm, I realized that it was I was working with a very tiny segment of students that they had already elected literature as a field that would matter. And my grandchildren went to school in France, did the lycée education. They had to choose at the age of 13 what track they would be in. And I sense that a great deal of European education, university is already essentially a kind of pre-professional or a professional yes. model. America, partly because secondary education is so bad, I think, in this country, that the liberal arts model in, in college, those four years, is, I think, a, a wonderful sort of process and a wonderful institution. I think it's fighting for its life today because of the kind of socioeconomic pressures uh, and it can look sort of irresponsible uh, if one is paying these tuitions to to major in literature, but it still fits within the sort of philosophical armature of the liberal arts model. So I'm grateful for that too. It's not like I made this model, but I was lucky to make a home of it. And what do you hope for those students who've been in your class, but don't go on to, a, you know, the arts or an academic career or journalism, but have nonetheless been exposed to that liberal arts mm -hmm. education with you? What do you hope that they will take with them into later life? Not necessarily in terms of, you know, increasing their earning potential, but what do you hope is, is still in there after 20, 30 years? Well, well, it's a good question, and it's one that you know that they too sometimes ask me. One is that they're going to be readers the rest of their lives, and they're going to therefore, in a sense, uh, be people for whom the arts can be a living thing, and that they can, uh, in a sense, partake of them. And and uh, Hemingway used the wonderful word about Paris; it was a movable feast, and I, I like the sumptuousness and the sensuousness of that of that metaphor. I think that the arts are also that in general for, for people. One never outgrows that. You can be, you know, a, a, a Wall Street executive and still find that there's a pleasure in going to museums and in reading novels and plays, going to the theater, etc. It gets to the basic distinction that life and work are not the same thing. And that the students who are going to go into the sciences or go into economics or the STEM fields still have lives that, that they have to live. And the difference between literature and the kinds of professional training that they would get to make their careers is that literature speaks to having a life. It speaks to having self-awareness. It speaks, if one believes in these things, and having a soul. All of these are forms of hunger, nurturance, satisfaction. They, they never get outdated. That no matter what your line of work is, I think those are real things. I've also gotten sort of an endorsement on that front by the amount of work I've done with adult audiences through my work in creating online courses or giving two, some 200 lectures over the 90s and the early years, the 2000s, on literature for this outfit called The Great Courses of the Teaching Company. These were adults. And I think this is a very American thing, because, and I'd be curious to hear you on this, that in this country, there's still often a belief that the, the great books have something to teach us. My adult students who took these courses often told me they were returning to books that they read at 18 or 20, knew that they didn't really get everything that was in them, 
but still had this sort of lingering belief system that it was there. They just didn't get it. And they hoped that I might help them open, unlock that, you know, with a key to opening up all of that. I think it's a, maybe it's a kind of cultural insecurity about Americans that they feel that these books are something that they as adults should return to and unpack them and get something from them. But all of this testifies to the, the sort of nitty gritty uh, rationale of the arts that the, the last thing that the study of literature prepares you for, I think, is to be a professor. You know, it, it actually it prepares, it prepares you for living. When, when I got to that bit in your book, I scribbled in my notes, is literature wasted on the young? And I was being, I was being facetious because I don't, I don't believe that. And I think, you know, your, your book shows that it, it clearly isn't. But it's certainly the case. Thinking about literature ideally wouldn't solely be limited to the young or professors, you know, and what you've been doing with the great courses shows that there is a, there's a real appetite. You don't have to force it on people. There are people there who really want to engage with for the first time or re-engage with um, some of these great books that you teach. That's right. I do say in the book that it's not evident that young people, I mean, a young person has, I think, a, a smart young person can negotiate calculus and physics, but whether a young person can negotiate King Lear is a different proposition. That that the mind, the sort of mental critical faculties are operational at 18 or 19, but experientially one hopes that they know very little about death and dying. So in that sense, there, there is some feeling that literature it does make sense for older people, except that one wants young people also to get that exposure. One of the things that I sort of a phrase that I enjoy is that literature enables you to imagine experience, uh, imagine things that you cannot afford to experience. The literature is so filled with pain, death, dying, madness, all, all of the things that tragedy and that many of our great novels put front and center. And the literature offers you a vicarious taste of that. It makes sense to get that exposure at 18 or 20. If you get it at 40 or 60, it tastes differently. But of course, it never stops being true. I mean, one of, the, one of the things I took from the book was the extent to which you believe in the, in the sort of power of language, that the, the real, you know, you describe it as ordinance sometimes, and that there's such condensed power within these books. They're not, they're not simply texts on which to exercise, mm-hmm. you know, critical faculties and write in a, in a particular critical way. And you at Brown University had this idea of setting creative projects that your students would do at the end of term rather than just writing a conventional essay. They would, in some sense, respond creatively to the stimulus of the text. But I wondered if you could explain what what happened when that was taken to the extreme by one student who'd been reading Knut Hamsun's Hunger because you, it kind of sort of tested that, that um, idea almost to destruction. But I think nonetheless, it's, it's both funny but also instructive. Well, I, I exactly, and it was the it was the cautionary tale that I felt like I had to tell. I mean, it made sense to tell young people write something creative. They weren't reading literary criticism; they were reading novels and poems and plays. Why not sample that on their own? And and many of them were thought of themselves as maybe they might be the great American novelist, even though they probably were going to go on instead and be a doctor or a lawyer, but. Hamsun's book is such an extremist text where fasting 
I mean, I think the book is misunderstood. To me, it's about creativity. Fasting becomes an effort, in a sense, to free up the mind or to get clear of the of the very obvious laws of physiology and or organic life. That fasting is a way of saying that I'm not bound and subject to those things. So I taught the book as a an effort, uh, really a kind of mad effort at liberation from the constraints even of living in a body. And so therefore, I was a sitting duck when the student came and said, you know, I love to write. And what I'd like to do is write a paper. Uh, but to do it on the basis of fasting for several weeks uh, and writing down my experiences, which is pretty close to what that Homsen's novel does. I, like an idiot, I said, fine. And then, as I say in the book, that uh, I had gone right after that to uh, a meeting with a fellow who ran a study abroad program and knew a lot about sort of legal issues involving education and told me that I had just taken an enormous risk. What would happen to me if this same student continued to fast? And what happened if would happen if he got sick? Or God forbid, if he were to die, I would not only lose my job, but I'd be in jail because it would be understood that he this was all because of what Professor Weinstein in this literature course had said he could do for getting and get a grade for it. And I couldn't stop him, by the way. He went right on through and fasted. And I spent several weeks really sweating it out, thinking that this is going to end badly. It didn't. I mean, life people are pretty tough, ultimately. But I also realized that he had taken me seriously. And then it it brought up the question, do I really want to be taken that seriously? Do I really want the things that I'm saying about the power of the imagination to be so persuasive that someone actually runs great risk in trying to follow that logic as this young person did. I'm reminded of the Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, which I write about because it's a kind of pivotal text for me, where Kierkegaard says that if someone were to give a sermon uh, about the Abraham Isaac story and that that Sunday to preach on it and that someone in the congregation decided to sacrifice his son because he thought that God told him to do it, we would put that person either in prison. And Kierkegaard knows that in 1843. He's aware that this breaks all of our rules. We don't live, if someone actually took this biblical story and tried to apply it to their own life, it would create enormous problems. And and Kierkegaard is really wrestling with that because he wants it to be applied. But I think, you know, it, it reminds you about where the sort of cutoff line is about what's good for the soul and what's good for the way we're actually going to, you know, move our bodies and do things today, tomorrow, and the next day. But that's what the imagination is about. It means that we can think things we will never do, of course, and we wouldn't, we would choose not to do them, yeah. but we choose to think them. Yeah. It, it struck me as fortunate you hadn't been teaching Kafka's in the penal colony to that student, or you might... <laughs> It might have been too late for you to to, to step in. The damage might have been done. I wondered, you talk in the book about some books which become unteachable. They've got a charge of toxicity and virulence. You, you say Strindberg has sort of fallen into that category. And Kurtzi's novel, Disgrace, you were, you were brought up short by your students' reaction to that. And I know it's a very big question, but I wondered how you, I wonder how do you react to that? Is it something which is inevitable as society and, and tastes and ideas change? And if so, 
how do you gauge what is unteachable and what is what is perhaps at the limit but should nonetheless still be on the syllabus? Right. It's a it's a it's a a good and painful question. How you gauge it is that you collide into it, uh, that you crash into it, because your students will very quickly make it known to you that this is either unteachable or should be off the, you know, reading list. I think we're in a very severe cultural moment. Reminds me of the Inquisition and the uh, books that are put on the index. Uh, and I think we're not all that far from burning text. And for the all kinds of reasons, I think um, the the most idealistic of my students, the ones that you want to go out and change the world and make it better, often, I think, have a sense of what looks to me like co- political correctness. And of course, this is, I speak as an old person. They don't see it that way at all. And so a book that might, in their view, smack of either, you know, racism or sexism is a book that should not be taught. And um, I come to these matters as someone who is, believes uh, that our culture is, has all too much racism and sexism. America and uh, society has tons of it. But I also believe that books like Disgrace or you know, my beloved Faulkner, whom I want to teach in every course that I teach, who writes about the racial sins of the American South. I grew up in the South. I went to school when the public schools were lily white. I think I have as much conviction about the heinousness of racism as my students do, and arguably more because I saw it firsthand. These are the reasons that I believe that books that shine a bead, uh, you know, a light on this. Uh, are books that should be taught. But I think that the students take the view that just reading these books is an act of complicity or a form of injury that should be proscribed from the university. And this saddens me. Uh, I feel that my curriculum is in a sense self-destructing. I feel like I'm on the losing side of that battle, that they have a truth it's the truth of their convictions. It's the truth that they they deem it, you know, inappropriate to teach these texts, and it has a lot to do with what you can say. Uh, you, that I still insist on teaching Huckleberry Finn, but the N word is what you have to use. Whereas I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, hearing what that N word stands for all the time. I never once pronounced it. My parents explained to me that this is a vicious term. I knew it. All of that, to me, says all the more reason to see that history is real. Racism existed, still exists in many pockets of this country. So I think we're in a, in a, at a kind of bad pass right now. I think that the academy, because of the fierce progressive views of the best students, has also become a place where I think it can be a bit intemperate. And um, as I said, I don't think we're that far from putting books on the index or burning books and saying that you can't be exposed to this, you can't be exposed to that, because they're all sullied and dirtied. History is sullied and dirtied. And it worries me that in America right now, in particular, this is well out of beyond my field. I think that our moment of, you know, wokeness, as as the critics call it, of seeing something about the racial above all, but also gender inequalities and, um, you know, 
errors and, and long legacies in American society, the 1619 project about the, uh, the views in the minds of many that, that uh, even the American constitution was flawed, that uh, from its outset in the founding of this country, uh, the, the slave issue was never properly addressed or resolved. That is, you kill the messenger today. You shoot the messenger if one tells young people that they themselves don't, either don't want to hear it. In high schools, we're now learning that their parents, school boards don't want their students to be, that Toni Morrison's you know novel, Beloved, and she won the Nobel Prize, is no longer going to be allowed in many high schools throughout this country because it can be, it's thought to be somehow it dirties the students' minds. It makes them too ashamed of being American. I don't know how one negotiates these matters. I have always thought that's what literature is for, is to raise the curtain on things that are not comfortable. We see it as far back as Sophocles. But I think we're at a moment now uh, where it has reached a kind of real critical impasse and it makes me much more comfortable with the idea that I will probably retire in a year or two, or I'll have to really start to cleanse in a way that I'm not comfortable doing uh, my syllabi and make sure that, uh, because after all, you don't want to collide with your students. You don't want them to feel that you have somehow uh, offended them or pained them in what you're teaching. A reader of your book gets a, a very good idea of the authors who are important to you and have been important to you through a, a long career of, of reading and teaching. But I wondered, who are the ones that you find yourself even now going back to for most in nourishment and, and enrichment? You know, of that pantheon, who are the, the ones that speak to you most eloquently still? Uh, well, you know, as I mentioned a moment ago, Faulkner is my great love. I wrote my dissertation largely on him decades and decades ago for all the reasons that that uh, we just discussed, that he digs deepest into the unsolved problems, the sins, really, of American culture from the founding. He doesn't go back to the 17th century, but he knew firsthand as a Mississippi writer about um, the horrors of racism, and his books plummet, uh, you know, with all of the brilliance of modernist fiction, the techniques of interior monologue and discovering what what kind of a of a blight uh, slavery is uh, or race is and uh, but you know one goes back I teach Shakespeare when I get a chance I love teaching Othello and it allows me as well to talk about issues of race Kafka is one of my great favorites um, partly because it's such a workout for the imagination he ob- obliges uh, readers to sort of inhabit positions that, that that they're utterly unaccustomed to doing, and partly because of what I take to be the supreme logic of his works, which is what I call metamorphic, transformational. His stories are all about people becoming something else. And he sees this in relation to the work of power also. But of course, I also see it as a kind of readerly experience too, that reading these texts allows us vicariously for a bit to become someone else. I've batten onto that partly as an identical twin who was often taken to be somebody else. But I think of it as the great gift, because it really is a gift. It probably belongs in an almost anthropological view of gift culture of the arts, that reading math doesn't 
or history even doesn't allow you to become somebody else. But reading an imaginative work of literature or even looking at paintings or films for that matter does allow you for a while to uh, make that type of imaginative uh, investment to inhabit subjectivities or times or places even that are not your own. I think that's just, you know, there's something splendid about that. And um, so those are some of the writers, you know, Kafka, Faulkner, Shakespeare, Sophocles. I teach the Oedipus in so many courses, even in a course on literature and medicine. I teach Sophocles because it's about understanding how a society behaves when there is a pandemic going on. It's against the backdrop of mass plague. So the, the great classics to me almost always resonate with uh, issues that my students and I are in our own way confronting as well. I was talking to Arnold Weinstein, my thanks to him. His book, The Lives of Literature, Reading, Teaching, Knowing, is currently available from Princeton University Press in hardback and as an ebook. On the Hedgehog and Fox website, you'll find links to over a hundred more episodes of this programme. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's on Apple, Google and Spotify and elsewhere. And catch up on any interviews you've missed. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.